This is the Dava Project. So to recap, where where were we? We're finishing at the end of the 18th century last episode, where everything had gone pretty dire thanks to the weather and improvements that really just were not successful. A lot of people were doing pretty badly at the end of the 18th century on the Dava. Yeah, that's right. So by the, I guess, like the 1770s, 1780s, there's quite a few hundred people now living on the Dava in these new, quite precarious farms, which they're trying to establish. And it might have worked out to an extent if the weather had uh, played ball, but um, unfortunately in the 1770s and 1780s, it was spectacularly cold um, in Scotland, especially in the 1780s. So many of these tenants, um, the harvests completely failed. Um, they're not allowed to keep any cattle or hardly any cattle, not enough to kind of um, commercially anyway. And um, so there's a lot of people in pretty dire financial straits. And um, so there's a lot of people who are very, very unhappy and tensions start to um, arise because of this. There have been only a lot of black pudding being eaten. Yes, something like that, especially um, in, in the, there's quite a lot of letters and things surviving from this period from people who've obviously expected quite a lot from this fantastic opportunity that's been presented to them to take over these former shielings on the moor. And then the bitter reality of it has kind of come home and they're pay, expected to pay these hugely inflated rents. So there's these letters that um tenants are writing to the laird going um i've tried my best but this is just all rocks and heather and you try and get some some corn out of it and see if you can do any better um so it's um <laughs> they're not doing very well at all to be honest with you um, and like i say this leads to quite a lot of tension between the people who are up there because obviously um there is some kind of viable farmland on the dava as you can still see when you go across there places like Renekra and lime kilns and stuff like that, there is some, not amazing land, but it's okay. And this is obviously where the first people who started to um, produce arable crops on the moor, this is where they went first of all, because they knew that it was the good land. So obviously people want to get their hands on whatever decent land there is and the grazing which goes with it. So you start to get people trying to acquire their neighbor's land or just grazing their animals on the neighbor's lands without permission because all this has been kind of done in quite an ad hoc basis so there's no fences there's no walls there's no proper boundaries it's just a bit of a free-for-all and the estate just kind of 
the state took quite a hand in it initially when it looked like quite a good idea and then they kind of just take a step back and they seem to just let everyone get on with it which has the kind of predictable consequences um especially when some of the families who are on the more i suppose it's a bit like the wild west almost this kind of new frontier um, they're breaking in the land and it's all a bit lawless um, and then the queen family um, who obviously are still um, in Strathspey, um, Achna Hannett, um, they were one of the first families on the moor at Lime Kilns and they had quite a reputation in the 1780s as being particularly um, violent um, if it meant that they would be able to get their way um, so, for instance, they were farming lime kilns and Renekra on the moor, which is, as I mentioned, some of the best land. Um, and some of their neighbours were starting to put in bids um, for the farms before time to try and get the best land. And when they heard about this, they started um, basically going around beating up and physically intimidating um, people who might try and put in rival bids for the land and things like this. So. And things started to get quite unpleasant. And, and at this point of starvation, because of the low, low crop yield, that really people are literally starving at, at this point. Yeah, literally starving. So, um, for instance, this is when Sir James Grant, I guess, probably gets his epitaph as the good Sir James um, when he starts to help out the people who were starving because of um, this awful weather, particularly in 1782, 1783. He starts importing meal from the south of England and corn and potatoes as well, other things like that, into Fintorn to try and feed um, his tenants. Although obviously this kind of disaster which is unfolding is partially of his own um, making. I mean, he can't control the weather, obviously, but he did force everyone to get rid of their uh, most of their cattle and things like this and said that you'll all be able to survive and depend upon arable crops and then all of a sudden the weather the climate changes completely and what was kind of precarious I mean you couldn't depend on having a good harvest every year it's pretty variable all of a sudden for the best part of a decade it's basically wiped out and he has to kind of try and salvage something from the situation but obviously people who can, can't afford to buy food also can't afford to pay their rent and um, so this leads to other problems. And if you know that your neighbors in a particularly bad way, they might have some good land, but they can't pay their rent, then you might be able to get kind of slipped into their shoes as it were. So these are the kind of tensions. You've got people fighting over very meager resources, always looking over their shoulders to someone else who thinks that they can do a better job than you've done. So things aren't, um, aren't going very well um, for the, and there's quite a big community as well at this point in time. So so bad that they eventually the tensions are so high that that proper murder is happening. Yeah, again involving the McQueens. Um, so in 1788, the McQueens were in quite a unfortunate incident. Some people described it as an attempted murder. They tried. They basically. Um, battered um, this man who lived in Glenbeg, whose father had put in a bid for one of their farms and they left him for dead on the moor. Um, but that was just kind of a precursor to what happened in July, 
the McQueens, they were kind of had spread out over the moor by this point in time. This is something that you see is that it's the same families um, up there on the moor. There's only about four, four kind of families who are up there until the 20th century, really. Um, and the McQueens were at Lime Kilns, Renecra, and Tirrybeg, which was um, on the far, no, it's Tirry Moor even, sorry, on the far side of Lockendorf. So the house has been demolished now, but there's some, there'll be some lovely pictures of Tirrymore Farm in the, in the book, which Grantham Museum hold. It's a little farm that became quite famous in the, what, 1930s or 40s, was it, with the, uh, a book being published about it and a novel um, called... Yeah, key at, the key above the door. So yeah, this is, uh, Tirrymore became famous later as the setting supposedly for this novel, Key Above the Door. But in 1789, it achieved notoriety for uh, much darker reasons when um, the inhabitant, the tenant of Terrymore Farm was murdered at Darverin um, on the night of 2nd of July, 1789. So what basically had happened was John Dow McQueen, the uh, tenant of Terrymore had been enjoying a day's fishing um, with his cousin, another McQueen who'd uh, come up to the moor to visit his family and they were enjoying some fishing on the burn. They met a couple of other people from some of the other farms, so from Aitnuk and Tom Dow, and they all thought, why not go to the pub? <laughs> so they all went They all went to the Darver Inn, um, which was kind of like a, a staging post where you could change horses and things like that um, on the military road going over the moor. So it's um, where the turn off to Lock and Dorb is now the inn used to be there and on their way to the inn which is about I don't know, three miles from Tirrymore, they met Peter Nairn and his brother um who and they lived at the farm of Dalvulin which doesn't really exist anymore there's some ruins you can still find it if you go and uh, walk out over the moor and you can see it on the maps and stuff like that but it, um it's not um inhabited and there's not really any ruins to see there anymore but anyway they met um, this man, Nairn, on the way to the pub. And um, Nairn and, and John Dow, they'd had a bit of history over the previous few months. So they'd been arguing about grazing. As we said, there's these kind of scarce resources. There's no fences, no boundaries. Uh, it's a bit of a free-for-all. And these men had kind of been having a tit-for-tat running battle over who controlled the grazings on the hillside behind Tirrymore and Dalvulin. Um, they'd been kind of seizing each other's cows and sheep and impounding them, um, saying that the, their neighbours' cows and sheep had been getting in the corn and things like this. And obviously when things are kind of so precarious, this was not a laughing matter and kind of events between them had become quite heated. But on this day, they decided that they'd go, the Nairns would go to the inn with um, the other four men and they'd kind of talk it out and resolve it, um, which was obviously... <laughs> A great idea. So that's what they all did. They got to the inn middle of the afternoon after walking there and then they all started drinking and it, it's quite interesting actually not just because it's a colourful piece of history with a murder and things like this but because the records are so detailed on obviously they collected lots of evidence and took they took witness statements from all these people who lived on the moor. So you start getting a picture of what it was like living on the moor in the 1780s all these people knowing each other, going out fishing and then going to the pub at 
Darva Inn on an afternoon in the summertime and they stay there until dawn drinking whiskey and whiskey punch and in the um, in the transcripts from the court records they're breaking glasses and things like this in the pub so it's quite a quite an image that you start to get from these these records. pub um tom dow and aiknick they go home and it's just the only people that are left are john dow and his cousin um alex uh, patrick mcqueen sorry who we said was down at culloden and then patrick nairn and his brother william and um the men start to talk about what's been happening on the moor and things like this um but they kind of appear like they're the best of friends people see them shaking hands and things like this so everyone thinks it think it's ended quite well but it's well into the night and they're well through quite a few um drams by this point in time and um patrick mcqueen um the huntsman he decides to bed down in the inn for the night and so does um william nairn um so they get a bed made up in the corner of the main room and they're quite happy fast asleep John Dow and Patrick Nairn, though, they kind of keep on talking. And then once again, the arguments start to flare up and they decide that they're going to go home. But there's kind of this thing that they, they shout at each other and they're like, well, I'm going to meet you later and then we're going to sort this out. So the innkeeper overhears this and he tries to get them to stay the night as well. Um, but they refuse and they both head off into the night. But before the innkeeper can shut up the inn, and go to bed. Patrick Nairn comes back, finds his brother, and asks him if he can borrow his big wooden staff. Um, all the people in these stories, for some reason, all of them have a big wooden stick. All of the stories are stories are the same. It's what the McQueens used the previous year to beat up um, the person from Glen Beg. They tried to beat him to death with the wooden staff. Patrick Nairn got his brother's staff and disappeared into the night and nothing more was heard until the following morning when the maid went out to get the peats to light the fire at 6am and she found John Dow McQueen dead in the peat stack. said there's a dead man in the peat stack and the innkeeper went nah I don't believe you and he went outside and went he's just fast asleep he's fine came back into the inn and went and found his cousin the huntsman and went your your cousin's asleep in the asleep in the peat stack and Patrick McQueen goes well get him in and we'll have another dram then so they go out to try and raise him but it's he's in a massive pool of blood his skull's fractured his hands are covered in cuts from where he's tried to shield themselves from this rain of blows that someone's laid down upon him and that's kind of when they realize that there's been 
a terrible incident kind of arising from the grazings and stuff so um that's that's when the investigation starts and they go and find Patrick Nairn who's at home by this point in time um you get this image of domestic bliss and um, when they walk into the walk into his house and kind of confront him with the evidence that his neighbor's dead and he's quite happily having his hair combed by his wife and says what a terrible thing this is and he hopes that the murderer will hang um which then turns out that everyone thinks it's him um and he's arrested and the laird so james grant of grant kind of has to go and lead the investigation because he's a justice of the peace um, so this is where they end up interviewing all of the all of the inhabitants of um, Darva. So that's where all this um, information comes from. And is he the murderer? <laughs> Simple question. <laughs> well, this is this is where this is where things um, things get more more tricky in the records because um, the links between John Dow McQueen and Patrick Nairn are a bit more complicated than they first seemed because. Uh, first of all, it appears that they're just neighbours, but actually they're cousins. Um, so through marriage, Patrick Nairn is John Dow's cousin. And even more interestingly, John Dow's mother is a subtenant of Patrick Nairn and lives in a house on his land. So there's all these other kind of weird links going on between these two men. It's kind of a very strange, you kind of get this picture of how interconnected everything is on the moor with um, all these people related to each other and things like this. And basically they couldn't find enough evidence or it was a bit too circumstantial um, because he was, Patrick Nairn was the only person who was known to have been out on the moor at the same time as, as John Dow, but that was all they really had to go on in this kind of previous history. Eventually they did find the murder weapon, um, half of which they thought they'd found in Patrick Nairn's house, which you would have thought was pretty damning evidence. But when he was taken up for trial in Inverness before the High Court of Justiciary, the assize, the jury found him not guilty. So he was free to go. And as far as I'm aware, um, the case was never revisited and it was just kind of laid to rest at that. Although Patrick Nairn did make some kind of cryptic comments um, Another one of his uh, cousins lived up there um, where Atten Dow is now, and he was part of the guard who helped take Nairn to Inverness. And on the journey there, he made some kind of cryptic remark about if they could find enough evidence, then Nairn was surely going to hang. But whether this was some kind of admission or not, it's not really clear, but it kind of gives a very tantalizing snapshot anyway of what life was like. Um, for those first people setting up the farms, the modern farms that we know today on the Darva. It wouldn't have been any less serious at the time, even though it was, uh, you, you say it's a brutal time, it wouldn't have been any less serious a murder in your community as at any time now. And must have had repercussions over the next few generations. Yeah, for sure. You can imagine in such a kind of close-knit, community where even though everyone's not really necessarily getting on there's obviously a very close connection between all the people who are up there and they've got this shared bond as well I guess that they're kind of breaking in these new frontiers and they're going through all this trouble and stuff together and having such a traumatic incident happening in the middle of their community and all this suspicion falling upon 
their relatives, their friends, their neighbors, their enemies um, must have made life up there even more um, difficult. Yeah, and it doesn't really get much better from there on in. Into the early 1800s. And as you say, this is um, where the kind of repercussions of the famine um, come home to roost, as it were, for Sir James Grant of Grant, because all of a sudden he's in severe um, financial trouble. His debts are worth around £20 million in modern day um, kind of money, if you kind of take into account inflation like that. So his management of the estates has been pretty disastrous. Um, he starts. He sells off as much land as possible without kind of breaking up the core of the um, estates, but still he's um, a long way short. So for years he's been kind of lenient and not really tried to evict any of the tenants who've not been paying their way, but I'm not sure it was that lenient because obviously I think a lot of these farms, like the ones on the Dava, when people realised that they were um, not really worth worth anything at all then they they couldn't really find new tenants for them so there wasn't really any point in evicting evicting people because you couldn't find anyone new to take their place but nonetheless um by 1800 evictions were were in swing um definitely there were large-scale evictions taking place um and this kind of ties in with what was beginning to happen um elsewhere in the highlands especially on the Sutherland estates where you see the big clearances there um, kind of from um, the 1810, 1820s onwards. This is around the same time period. Um, and it's kind of something similar. Um, the only difference, I think, really in Straff's Bay is that there isn't really any um, resistance to what's going on. But these are still large scale removal of tenants um, legally undertaken. And the interesting thing as well is that the grants used the same legal firms, the same people as were later used in the Sutherland clearances. So their main lawyer was the Elgin-based lawyer, Thomas Seller, and they made use of his son, the notorious Patrick Seller, to remove tenants on Darver Moor, um, amongst others. So quite a lot of um, the new um, improvements which were created in the 1750s and 1760s, which have, you wouldn't, you can still see traces of them today if you look really hard, but for the casual observer, you probably wouldn't notice them when you're crossing um, crossing the moor, but most of these ones were um, cleared um, around 1800 um, or incorporated into the ones which remained, but quite a lot of tenants. Um, it's estimated, um, I haven't got the exact numbers, but several hundred um, tenants and subtenants from Straths Bay were cleared around 1800. We'll hear more from Charles and the story of the Dava in the 19th century in the next episode, The Dava Project.